Trends and Voices with Ben Whitaker. Happy New Year and welcome to the first Transit Voices of 2023. We're starting with an absolute lifetime transit and active travel advocate, René Autumn Ray, working from government to conduit and Hayden AI. Someone who's been making the good kind of trouble, even getting into trouble by being too much of an advocate for cycling and pedestrian and active travel. Today, she's going to be telling us about good effective uses of high technology like artificial intelligence and image processing to really move the needle on public transit, improving on-time performance for buses by 14% just through camera systems. Now, let's get talking. So welcome, Renee, to the Transit Voices podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Renee Autumn Ray is joining us from uh, Hayden AI and also has had a career many years at Conduent and has I think you're in a number of the big transit kind of groups where you're helping the whole industry kind of point in the right direction and figure out what to do. Can you just give us a quick summary of the the main bits of a transit career you've been a part of and, and what you'd lift out as some of the big projects and deliverables that you're proud of? It has been 15 years now since I graduated from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill with a master's in urban planning. I actually specialized in land use development and I started my career doing real estate, but I fell into transportation pretty quickly. Any land use urban planner will tell you that there are a lot of negative externalities when you develop land poorly and they frequently fall on transportation agencies and transportation practitioners to try to fix. So certainly the suburban sprawl that we've got in the U.S. that hampers a lot of what we might like to do from a transit agency or a cycling advocate perspective are hindered by the way we've built our towns and suburbs. So I got into transportation about two years after I graduated, and I've basically just stayed in it ever since. I had a job working for the city of Tupelo, Mississippi, and the mayor was elected on a public health platform. And so I thought, if I can explain to him why improving cycling and walking infrastructure is related to his campaign platform, maybe he'll let me do some sort of fun side projects. And so that worked. I ended up working for the city for two years, worked as a contractor for the Centers for Disease Control on built environment initiatives, made some connections with the Federal Highway Association related to built environment and public health. So I've actually worked on almost every travel mode except for driving a private vehicle. So started with walking and biking And when I left CDC, I went to a regional planning agency in Atlanta, and I focused on what we call demand response or community transportation, which looks a lot like paratransit, but has a different funding stream. So I was focused on reducing transportation barriers for older adults and people with disabilities. And that was really rewarding work. But I felt working on a team of social workers and I was working with individual riders. And frankly, as a city planner, I'm not used to working on on one-to-one, right? I like kind of going up to a higher level. So I left that job, went to Conduent, where I focused on business development for transit and was really interested, again, in reducing barriers to access. So thinking about how can we reduce the friction of paying for transit and of actually physically accessing a bus or train from 
my time at Conduent, I got exposed to a lot more of the innovative technologies that are across the transportation landscape. So I focused not just on transit, but on curbside management and traffic enforcement and even tolling payments. And so when this offer came along to work at Hayden AI, which is a fast-growing startup focused on transit operations. I jumped on it. I've been here a little over a year, and it's been really exciting. So I feel like over the course of my career, I've done everything from conduit, 65,000 people, federal government, local government, regional government. I was employee 16 at Hayden last year, and we're up to about 75 or 80 employees now. That is hyper growth. That, I mean, that, that almost sounds, I, I'd say, dangerous in terms of the number of new faces and and how the initial management team and culture can kind of change in between kind of 16 and 75 in a year. I mean, Masabi has been a growing company over years and that I've always found there's almost a breaking change of management culture and approach that needs to happen every time you double your number of employees. And you've had a few doublings to make it up to uh, 75. Yeah, we have. Absolutely. To be honest, this is the best team I've ever been on in my entire career. And it was really important to me when I started to be part of creating and sustaining a really healthy, collaborative and trust building culture. I feel like we've been able to do that in terms of the hiring decisions we've made and the way that we work not just on the small team that I'm on, the growth team, but also across engineering and product and operations. So honestly, I'm just having a lot of fun. I mean, my career growth is really taken off the past year, and it's just exciting to have such a great product that's really resonating with agencies and to be able to share something new with them that seems to be resonating and that they seem to really enjoy. Uh, Very much the exciting thing about what you're delivering at the moment is some really high-tech buzzword capabilities, but deploying them in a really practical way. Let's move on to some of the uses of AI and expert systems uh, that you're working on now. What would you pick as some of the new uses of technology which sound really scary or sound really difficult, but really need to have that trial in public or use in public for people to then relax a bit and go, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, that's kind of useful, isn't it? There are three transformational experiences that I've had with technology in the past 20 years, and they all involve my smartphone. The first one was the first time that I was in San Francisco and a friend of mine introduced me to Uber and we got out of the car and I said, why didn't you pay the driver? And he said, I did it all on my phone. The second one was the first time I used the Park Mobile parking app. At that point in Atlanta, I remember going to a parking lot to get on an Amtrak train and take the train up to Virginia. And I had to fold a $5 bill into a very tight fold and stick it through a slot for the number of my car. And I thought, has this parking payment system been here since like before I was born? Like, what if I didn't have a $5 bill? What's happening here? And so the amount of friction that was reduced was incredible. And I flew into Chicago and we were going to take CTA to the hotel downtown. And when I realized that I could use my smartphone to pay for the ticket, instead of having to wait at the ticket vending machine, try to figure out how much is it going to cost? Are there zones? What makes sense? Do I need an all day ticket? Can I put my wife on the ticket? Do we need two tickets? You know, I just like tapped it, held my phone down and went through. And I just remember the experience of this was so easy. I didn't even have to think about it. Those aren't artificial intelligence examples, but to me, it's I think one of the challenges of technology is there are 
things that create friction or create problems that we have gotten used to because we've dealt with them for so long. So I was just used to have to spend five minutes standing in front of this vending machine trying to figure out where am I? Where am I going? How much does it cost? What does the ticket look like? Is it made of paper? How do I tap it in the machine? This is my segue into Hayden AI. Actually, that's what I really like about the product that Hayden AI has. So the first use case that we have is enforcing traffic in dedicated bus lanes. I know you're based in the UK. London has had dedicated lanes for far longer than I think a lot of US cities have. But A lot of U.S. agencies are making investments in these dedicated bus lanes, and there was a major city in the U.S. that invested in these lanes, painted the red stripe down the street, did the level on board to make the bus experience better for the riders. But they had so many cars that parked illegally in the lanes that they didn't get any of the improved on-time performance or better speed that they were looking for. And so it's seen as a failure of bus rapid transit in this place. And so... Because it would never make sense to have parking enforcement officers just standing around on the street waiting for someone to park illegally. So what we've done at Hayden AI is take artificial intelligence and computer vision. We stick a couple of cameras on the inside of a bus. They face out and we just start capturing these evidence packages So our first contract is for MTA in New York City. And so what they found is at least 80% of the people that get a ticket don't get a second ticket. So it actually changes driver behavior. People don't want to get a second one. And MTA has already found pretty decent increases in speeds as the program has kept going over time. If I can tell an agency, we have a camera that will help you enforce the parking rules on your dedicated bus lane and help your buses move faster. That's enough of a value proposition that they're interested in hearing more. So it's one of those things where it was such an intractable problem that nobody really had a solution to solve it beyond the uh, exponentially high cost of putting bodies on the street to try to enforce these rules, which isn't financially feasible. Being able to do that with a camera is so much better for agencies that it's, yeah. and it's really exciting to say. The kind of computer vision and number plate recognition systems are commoditized now to a point that these systems are very reliable. And what I love about your solution here as well is it's not a case of building infrastructure in the street with comms and power and having to then clean the cameras and keep those cameras from vandalism or fitting every single bus with a camera. Just putting a few buses per route means that as they go round and round, they are picking up which so many cars that they go by because they're all going to be on your routes and they can use the power and the comms already on the vehicle and they don't even need real-time comms. It's so elegant to just do it all inside the warm, heated bus that you're running along the route that you want to police anyway. And I'll bet the citations are sent out automatically as well. They are, absolutely. I mean, that we're the data capture and we also do some data analytics, but Every agency, whether it's a DOT or a parking authority, already has a violations processor. So all we need to do is hand integrate with their system and hand them oh, the data. Brilliant. But I very much love the fact that very quickly people only get one citation and then they kind of learn from that because the outreach program are trying to teach drivers something which they've got habits from a long time ago. You know, it's very hard to get advertising and messaging to the denizens of a city or a town because People are so good at filtering adverts now. 
and filtering Absolutely. official messages. So uh, getting one fine really does educate someone pretty quickly. And then those fines should fall away. You know, none of this is about the transit agency wanting the money from fines. It just wants the streets to be clear so the bus will go along. You know, the sort of numbers and the scale that transit agencies deal with. And so when agencies think about improving the speed of a route by 14%, when you think about things like needing to pay overtime for an operator who gets delayed on a route, potentially being able to reduce by one or two the buses that you would need because they're not getting clogged and bunching together on the route, you can really come up with operational cost savings alone in addition to providing a better customer experience for riders by having them not be delayed in the way that sometimes can happen when the bus is stuck in traffic and unable to move because they're being blocked by an illegally parked car. Well, it's funny, there's such a talk at the moment, especially with COVID providing some fertile experiment ground around free fares and not having any fares at all. And a lot of other people saying, if you can find the money for free fares, you can find the money to actually make public transit better because some of the main things that drive more people to choose public transit are when you have higher frequency. So if the time between buses at a stop kind of shrinks down, so you don't need to look at the timetable, you just turn up there like it's a subway system and the next bus is going to be along soon. And the reliability of that bus getting you to your destination on a, a, an expected time and BRT, bus rapid transit and bus dedicated lanes give you that faster speed, just like uh, pre-purchase tickets give you kind of 10x faster boarding, because I think it's 15 seconds or more on average to do a cash transactions on the footplate of a bus, whereas it's less than two seconds to board someone's prepaid. All of these improvements means the same number of buses and drivers can go around the route quicker, you get uh, less time between the buses, everyone who sits on the bus gets to their destination quicker, you also get more transit capacity if you've made the buses mm -hmm. quicker because you get more seats per hour past the stop. It's just many, many improvements every time you smooth that bus journey and make it go quicker and take those stops away. And so, yeah, fantastic use of AI and computer vision. I want to say to the fare free transit, one of the things that honestly shocked me when I first came to transit and which still continuously surprises me. So I started working in transportation from cycling and walking. And so I have never run across someone who works full-time in bike planning or operations that doesn't also ride a bike, enjoy riding a bike, want to advocate for it in their personal life. And so I remember coming to Conduent and thinking, this is great. I'm going to be working in transit full-time. Everyone I meet is going to be like a big nerd who rides the bus and I'm going to find my people. I can't wait. And the shock of the number of people in the industry, including transit agencies who don't regularly or sometimes even occasionally ride the service, I think is a reason that the service performs poorly. Because to me, fare-free transit is what I might think of as useful if I didn't ride the bus. But we have very clear evidence from surveys of large groups of transit riders that reliability and frequency is what they care about. I remember also seeing a study, it's been a few years, it was pre-COVID, but a number of people with very low incomes would pay more to take an Uber or a Lyft because they needed to get somewhere on time and they trusted the reliability of that service and they were willing to pay a premium for it. So I think there's 
a lot of places where fare free transit might make sense for someone like a Kansas City that's more of like a mid-sized market. But I think for the most part, focusing on increasing the frequency of the routes, the number of the routes, and mm. improving the way that the routes operate is going to resonate a lot more and bring more riders than just making something free. Definitely agree. And if you have got low-income groups, there are ways to provide low fares in a targeted way for low-income groups without the secondary social issues that happen when you have completely unneeted free transit which some of the free fare trials have resulted in uh, drivers almost going on strike because they end up as social workers, not, not bus drivers. One of the other things that Andy Byford was sort of an exemplar of saying, you know, you're in transit, you, you ride transit, and then you understand transit. You really understand what the, the staff want and the, the, issues, the issues on the ground. More services is going to help, but then we do get to points where it's not the high-density routes and it's more on the demand response or the dial-a-ride style services. Have you seen much of the, the rise of using Uber and Lyft and private hail services to supplement dial-a-ride and mixing some private along with the, the publicly run dial-a-ride systems? Yeah, I would say the U.S. has had a number of agencies embrace that. And I think there are a number of times when that does make sense. I remember being really surprised to learn that I think 80 to 85 percent of paratransit riders are ambulatory. So a traditionally designed vehicle works for a number of folks who, for whatever reason, can't access fixed route transit. I think what's really helpful about the Uber and the Lyft fleets is that a complete paratransit service that is the only vendor that's contracted with a transit agency has very high overhead costs because you have to guarantee a service, right? You know, Uber and Lyft, they don't have any sort of guarantee of service the way a transit agency is required to have the same hours of operation, the same geographic breadth of routes. At least that's the way it's practiced in the US. I wonder if it's really going to come in on dial-a-ride outside of paratransit and say it will allow you to focus more vehicles on high-density kind of trunk routes and then say, especially on low, low hours, out away from those high density areas, instead of having no public transit service using subsidized on demand means you can not run an empty bus round and round and round, which only turns up once every hour or two. You can give people at those late times who are, there's a very small number of people, you can give them on demand traffic service, which is a much higher service level than one bus an hour and not be wasting an entire bus, you know, running around with only one or zero passengers quite a lot of the time. And I think it might be a better correct form of mobility for the correct area. And then absolutely say, we're not going to pay for any on-demand when it's peak time on a peak route. You can be dropped at one of the transit ingress points for a light rail or a BRT or something that can then take you into the centre of town because we don't want the centre of town to be clogged up with private vehicles or for higher vehicles. Yeah, I do feel like focusing on fewer routes that have much more frequent service and having them be fed into with a sort of combination of paratransit and flex route transit really makes sense. I was able to tour a pilot of this kind of service in Denver as part of a federal transit administration um, awardee workshop. This was 2014, the number of years back that they tried, but they said if they had five boardings an hour, the numbers would pencil out for it to be a sustainable service for them. 
because the cost of paratransit, again, has such high overhead costs Mm. that they don't need a huge amount of boardings from fixed route or paratransit riders to switch to the system for it to be able to function. We'll get into this in the underdog section, but I'm really excited by the different modes that can feed into a more frequent and higher performing BRT route as something that makes transit a faster, more pleasant and easier option for folks to take. When you say finding your people and the the people who really trying to make transit and and cities work, I think it's not to say that we're anti-car and we don't believe in the car in any form. It's more that we certainly, if somebody's not living in the countryside, it would be great if more people were car optional or that more journeys were car optional. And I don't think that's going to come from just bus and just sort of rail. I think we've got to mix something else in to, to help us with sort of medium density. But as you, yeah. as you, as you mentioned, the, the underdog, let's, let's have a chat about your, your boondoggle and underdog picks. You're listening to Transit Voices, Boondoggle versus the underdog. I'd love very much to hear what you'd pick as your boondoggle, your white elephant, the bit of new tech or idea which is still all hype and no performance and you think we should probably just leave it for a bit. I have a clear winner here, which is sidewalk robots. (laughs) Okay, sidewalk robots. Yeah. In the U.S., we have the benefit of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Every level of government is mandated to provide some amount of accessible infrastructure for people with disabilities. And I don't know how much you've traveled in the U.S. and seen the state and the amounts and quality and condition of sidewalk infrastructure, but outside of major urban areas, it tends to be either non-existent, not in great shape, or not wide enough. And so I feel very strongly that sidewalk robots have so much risk. It doesn't make sense to me that you can ever have a sidewalk robot coexist in a space where pedestrians are already sort of like fighting for space in a lot of cases, especially when it might be not just pedestrians, but sometimes cyclists, because you've got a five foot sidewalk next to a five lane road where the speeds are 45 miles an hour, but the cars are going 60 to 70. And so some folks will take their bike on the sidewalk in that case. So I think there are too many friction points for sidewalk robots to really ever be able to scale up in a way that's going to make sense. Exactly. As you say, there are sidewalks that just disappear. There are sidewalks which have incredibly large gaps where they have to cross motor traffic. I mean, even just the areas where a main road pulls off into a a gas station or car park for whatever, you can easily end up with 10 meters that you have to cross being aware of what cars are going to do and they might be coming at high speed off. And I think this all comes back to If you design a town or if you design infrastructure around the needs of a child, and so it would be safe for a child to use it, almost every other user of the town benefits. So if it's now safe for a child to cross, if it's safe for a child to make its way down the sidewalk, then it's going to be safer for uh, people going shopping, people who are ADA requirements, or even for the sidewalk robot if you want to. But I agree with you that the, the variability of sidewalks is is such that it's definitely not a safe place for many children, let alone a, a, a robot which doesn't have the understanding of driver avoidance. And can um, cause conflicts and bump into things and, yeah. Yeah. Well, what's, what's really hilarious is how much ironmongery and kind of signposts and trash cans and other things all use up sidewalk space. And now even in some cities, the uh, electric car chargers are set back from the curbstone a bit 
right in the premium walking space and again limiting the uh, the access for ADA there's a few announcements now of proper sidewalk investment which I'm very excited about in, in a few towns finally acknowledging that the pyramid of mobility users and needs really does start with walking walking people are the, the fastest way to get the most people around in the middle of towns and then you kind of gradually go down to the private automobile being the least efficient in terms of space and safety and everything else. And the prioritization of investment is absolutely inverted against what to some of us looks like it should be the uh, the default choice. What about your underdog? What would you say is the idea that we should give a lot more airtime to that can achieve a lot more? In some ways, my underdog is like the flip side of the sidewalk robot. So what I really love are these, sometimes they're called mobility hubs, but it's basically neighborhood scale amenities in the public space that may be multimodal. So I'm thinking of things like sometimes a, in the U.S. we might call a traditional mobility hub something like a bus stop at a major intersection. They've added better bike and scooter parking, more dedicated space for that, and maybe like a little stand where air and screwdrivers, basic bike repair. It might also be things like Amazon lockers. So these are, I've mostly seen them when I've traveled in Europe, but stand of maybe 20 or 30 lockers that unlock with the code. And it's a place where you can do like very small, like package delivery. So rather than having the sidewalk robot come to your door, a person drops off packages in this large mailbox, Amazon locker setting. And somewhat related to that, it's not just the physical infrastructure of these sort of neighborhood scale multimodal linkages, but also the efforts that some transit agencies are making to link payment for transit fares along with payments for shared bikes and scooters to really make it easier for folks to get a first mile or last mile link to a transit mode by biking or, or scooting to or from their bus stop to start or end a journey. There's a little bit of tech in there. There's a little bit of not tech. But what I like about them, but what's hard about them is that they're going to be unique and dependent based on the location. And so you need government employees and folks that at the local level that sort of understand where are the pain points in this small geographic location? How can we actually reduce some of the friction to everything from like accessing the bus to receiving packages if maybe you live in an apartment or for whatever reason you have other stuff being dropped off and that it's a person-scaled technology solution that works for people. Well, I think it it sort of works to let people live their lives. And it's not just saying this little kind of bus stop area is just for bus stops. It's There's a bit of public realm that acknowledges that very much, you know, bus users, it's not about the traditional 1950s white-collar worker of get up in the morning, go one way, work during the day and come back. It's people who have multi-point journeys. They have different times of day they have to do it. They're not going to be at home to receive a package the whole time and not everyone has a concierge. It really does make sense to, as you say, at human scale, just make life easier to manage because you're going to be able to lock a bike or store something in the left luggage or get a parcel or, or anything else. Now, that, that makes a, a lot of sense. I think a lot of human a sort of public realm has been chipped away. The sort of uh, aggressive reduction of anywhere to sit, anywhere just to Absolutely. kind of be has, has gone. Yeah sometimes to use some of the land and infrastructure that's available to the city and to say, yeah, people are actually encouraged to hang out here. 
is not always something that's going to result in undesirable outcomes. It's nice when people actually make that work. Okay, that's a, that's a, a great underdog. Ben's who's who of transit. Just before we let you go, would you yeah. give us a, a name of someone that you think would enjoy to come on and uh, give us a bit of a slice of what they do in the transit world and think is important? I'm going to suggest a woman named Anna Zabartz. She lives in Seattle. She works for Disability Rights Washington, and she does a lot of bus riding and a lot of bike riding with her son. I think she would be a great interview. Okay, well, we'll get in touch with her and see if she wants to come on. Thank you so much, Renee. That has been fantastic. It's been great to to chat to you as a lifetime and career transit nerd, like uh, many of us get. And the sort of getting into transit is a story I hear over and over again, that not everybody does urban planning and then and then rocks into it. Some of them are coming from the world of technology or payments or something else. And they, they think they're going to just do a little bit of, you know, oh, I'll just work there for a couple of years in transit. And they get stuck in it. There's something about working in uh, transit and in things which are for civic life and uh, are used by the community that gives people a bit more in their career yeah. than just shipping some more adverts or something else. So it's, yeah. it's, it's been wonderful to hear all the different slices of what you've seen from, from inside city planning as well as inside the technology providers. No, thank you. It's frankly from the first time I heard of what urban planning was, I got excited to work in the field and I've gone through a number of twists and turns since then, but technology and transit are both, it's always changing. It's really rewarding and I never get bored. I'm always learning something new, which I appreciate. Transit Voices with Ben Whitaker. So there you have it. Thanks to Renee for coming along to chat today. Absolutely agree with her that some of the new technologies like sidewalk robots are a bit too early when we don't even have reliable sidewalks in some areas. And I agree completely that trying to build transit into neighborhood activity and life activity is going to make it easier for people to live life car free or car optional. I'd also echo Rene's comments that people who work in transit should be using transit and challenge anybody who doesn't have a regular need to use public transit who works in our industry to make excuses to go and experience it and try and do some of your regular activities and journeys with transit every now and then so you understand what it's really about. And do subscribe to our channel so that you get updates when we publish more content for the rest of our transit year. You've listened to Transit Voices, the podcast by transit nerds for transit nerds. Don't forget to subscribe to Transit Voices to keep up with the latest editions on your favorite podcast platform.